on January 15th, 2009, United Airways Flight 1549 departed LaGuardia Airport in New York City. This was to be a routine flight, one no one would remember. However, less than three minutes into takeoff, the plane hit a flock of geese, causing both engines to lose power. The pilot, Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger, radioed air traffic control and declared an emergency. Initially, Sully said he needed to head back to LaGuardia, but then he said he wanted to land at an airport in New Jersey because it was closer. That was the last transmission air traffic heard from him. The next thing they saw was the plane barely clearing the George Washington Bridge as it glided into the icy waters of the Hudson River. Incredibly, rather than risk not making it to the runway, Sully intentionally decided to put the airliner down in water. Even more incredible, he did so successfully. Not one, not one of the 155 people on board that day lost their lives, let alone suffered any kind of serious injury. Some didn't even get their feet wet. As a result, Sully was praised for his actions and lauded a national hero. President Obama gave him a seat at his first inauguration. The mayor of New York City gave him a key to the city. I don't really know what those do, what kind of doors they open, but he got one. He received a, a standing ovation at the Super Bowl, and he even served as the Grand Marshal of the Rose Bowl Parade. And I haven't even mentioned the multiple book deals, TV interviews, and Clint Eastwood's movie about him that he made last year. By all accounts, Soli's passengers that day found themselves in a dire situation, but one with the right man in the cockpit, a man whose dependability in a moment of serious crisis warranted the honor he would receive. Well, this morning, as we conclude our summer study of the Psalms, we're going to find God himself reached down from heaven to rescue David and us, God's covenant people, from a crisis so catastrophic, so dire, so severe, that it makes the miracle on the Hudson look like an amusement park ride. So go ahead, turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 57. Uh, it's on page 477 of the Red Pew Bible in front of you. As you're turning there, let me just take a moment. Psalm 57, let me just take a moment to remind you why the book of Psalms were written. Why the book of Psalms were written. Uh, the book of Psalms were, were written for public reflection instruction, such that when Israel gathered together to read and to sing them, they would grow in the way the psalmist was instructing them, whether it was to be to encourage them, uh, encouraging them to thank God for his blessings, to praise God, to bring their complaints before him, or, or just simply to walk in his ways. So as we come to Psalm 57 this morning, even though the author is David, we need to remember that he didn't write primarily for himself, right? Rather, he writes for the nation of Israel. He doesn't, he doesn't write this psalm so he can sing it in his own quiet times or in the shower. 
right? He's writing about his own experience for the sake of, 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 his, of God's people, that, that we might learn something about God's character and how we ought to live in light of him. So look with me in your Bibles at Psalm 57. Uh, I'm going to start, start there in the superscript. Uh, just follow along with me as I read. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. All right, so this psalm, it's going to break up pretty nicely in terms of its structure. You've really just got two main sections that, that David's working with. Verses 1 to 6, those are going to detail David's cry for mercy, his cry to the Lord for mercy. And then in verses 7 to 11, uh, de- 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 David's going to detail his joy in deliverance, right? His joy in the Lord's deliverance of him from the pit. And you can see in the psalm how David really bookends both of those sections with the refrain of, of God's glory there in verses 5 and 11. Be excited, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And you can see how, how both sections as well draw our attention to the steadfast love uh, of and the faithfulness of the Lord, such that God's glory and his covenant promises to his people kind of sounds off as the ringing chorus of this psalm. And it's clear from, from David's opening words right there and his context and the general movement of the psalm that David's posture as he writes, the place he's writing from, is one of deep distress. And yet, we're going to see him move throughout this psalm just as, just as his song itself moves from, from a place of lament to a mountaintop of praise. So what, what's David's deep distress? Well, I think the psalm tells us right there at the end of its heading. So look at, the, look at that superscript with me. A miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. 
So, so much like we saw last week in, in the, the psalm that Trey preached for us, Psalm 56, David finds himself once again on the run from his enemies. In fact, the superscription, that last line, it associates Psalm 57 with Psalm 56. For David's flight from Saul to the, uh, to the cave of Adalom there in 1 Samuel 22, the, that's the birthplace of Psalm 57. That's going to come right on the heels of David fleeing to Gath at the end of, of 1 Samuel 21, right? which is what the psalm uh, that Prey preached for us last week, where that was, where that was located. So Psalm 57, it's once again going to just kind of drop a smack dab in the middle of the days when, when Saul and his men are, are hunting down in hot pursuit of the one that God's going to give the throne of Israel. And I think what, I think what David means to teach us in this moment of despair, this moment of deep distress uh, and despondence, is that even when our current circumstances may suggest otherwise— even when they're shouting the complete opposite thing, we can praise God because he can be trusted. So the main idea of Psalm 57, if you're, if you're looking for that one-liner to write down this morning, that one thing to, that kind of summarizes the whole sermon, the whole text, it's this. God is worthy of your praise because God is worthy of of your trust. God is worthy of your praise because God is worthy of your trust. I think that's the, th- the thing we're going to see uh, David driving home into to our hearts this morning. We can praise God even in seasons when it seems ridiculous and totally absurd because God has proven himself worthy of our trust, because God has proven himself worthy. And we're going to see that really in two ways this morning. We're going to see it by considering two things that David's going to draw our attention to in the midst of his deep distress. So two points. That's all I've got for you this morning. Number one, you've got David's anchor in the storm. David's anchor in the storm. We're going to see that primarily in verses one to six. And then point two, David's anthem in the storm. David's anthem in the storm. We're going to see that primarily in verses 7 to 11. So those are your two points. That's where we're headed this morning. All right, point number one, David's anchor in the storm. David's anchor in the storm. All right, so right there in David's very first words, the very opening words of this psalm, we already begin to to get a sense of David's despair. The repetition of that imperative, be merciful, to me, oh God, it, it emphasizes both the, the severity of David's situation and the, the intensity of his need for deliverance from the Lord. Just listen, just listen to the way he's going to describe his situation. Verses 1 and 2, he's crying out for mercy, beaten down by storms of destruction. Verse 3, he feels trampled by his enemies. Verse 4, he feels boxed in by ravenous beasts, surrounded on all sides by the outstretched weapons of his pursuers. In verse 6, his hunters have laid a trap for his feet as if he's some kind of wounded prey on the verge of death. So these are desperate times for David. And what do we find him doing? We find him crying out to the Lord, God, for mercy. And this cry, this cry is not a cry for God uh, 
This, his cry is a cry for God to guard and deliver him from those who are trying to take his life. It's, it's not some last-ditch effort. God is not his, his last resort right here. It's not like he's got nowhere else to run, and so, well, I might as well just run to God. All right? He's entrusting his very soul to God, his most inward affections. This is the place David goes when he feels like he's in deep distress. This is a pattern. He's asking God to, to grant relief and show kindness to him. Not, not because David thinks that he deserves it or because he thinks that God is obligated to show it, but because, but because he knows he needs it. And he knows the God of Israel is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is, and David knows that. And so he flies to him as his refuge. No one else, no one else can show David the kind of mercy he needs in this hour. Not, not even Saul, who, who could call off the hunt with a snap of his fingers. Saul can't show David the mercy he needs. Only a God merciful and gracious. So David's cry is a confident yet humble appeal. It's not some arrogant demand. Now I want you to notice, we got to notice where David takes his shelter, where he finds it. Where most men would have named the cave itself a place of refuge, David, David doesn't even seem to realize he's in a cave, right? David, he's looking beyond the walls of that cave. God himself stands as his stronghold, his anchor until those storms of destruction pass. He knows his true means of shelter is the compassionate character of God, the one who delights to care for his children and longs to gather them up as a hen gathers her young under her wings. And notice how long David's, David's prepared to hide there. Notice, notice there at the end of verse 1 how long he's going to wait till the storms of destruction pass by. So David recognizes that, that he's caught in a life-threatening storm, right? And yet he knows that the storms are temporary. He knows that those storm clouds will eventually give way to clear skies. He knows what, what Paul knows in 2 Corinthians 4 in the passage that Clay read for us this morning. That his affliction has an expiration date. He knows that those storm clouds are going to roll back. That they're eventually going to give way to the sunshine. And that when, it, when they do it, they're going to give way to to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, now David's place in salvation history as the anointed king of Israel, it, it affords to him a unique assurance to say that his storm will pass, to say that the cave is, is not the place where his story is going to end. He can say that his storm will pass in, in such a way that, that we can't. It affords him uh, a unique assurance. But Christian, you need to hear this. If you are in Christ, if you are on this side of the cross and you are finding your refuge in Jesus, you are able to say that your storm will pass 
in a way that David couldn't even dream of. (laughs) All right? Because if you're in Christ, hear me say this. Hear me say this, Christian. If you are in Christ, your most life-threatening storm has already passed. You've already been rescued from the most hopeless, bottomless pit there is. For when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive in Christ, and he raised you up with him and seated you with him in the heavenly places. So brothers and sisters, hear me, hear me say this with tenderness. Hear me preach to myself here. The storms of this life, they may end up capsizing your boat. They very well may take your life when all is said and done. But your anchor, even in that hour, is sure and steady. Your life is hid with Christ on high. No storm, no cave, not even death itself can take that away from you. So take heart this morning. Take heart in the one who saved you. Take heart in the one who plucked and pulled you up out of that pit, even as the storms of this life toss you to and fro. Take heart. And maybe you don't find yourself caught in a storm this morning. Maybe you're enjoying the calm sunshine of peace. Brother, sister, praise God for that. Praise God if you are enjoying the sunshine today. But be ready. Be ready for the storm when it comes. As one commentator puts it, there are seasons when we are privileged to enjoy the calm sunshine of prosperity. But there is not a day of our lives in which we may not suddenly suddenly be overtaken by storms of affliction. And it is necessary that God will cover us with his wings. If, if you're experiencing peace right now, no storm is beating you down or blowing your way, brother, sister, use, use your calm skies this morning. Use your calm skies to keep watch for members of this church who, who find themselves caught up in a storm. Care for your brothers and sisters who are in the cave. Feelings of of despair, bewilderment, depression, exasperation, isolation, these are all commonplace in the Christian life. Many in in our own congregation, many sitting in these pews, in this room right now, are experiencing these emotions. And they need you to join them in the storm. Consider how you might best serve them. How, how you might cultivate Christian sympathy for them, just, just as you have promised to do if you're a member of this church in the church covenant. Consider how you might best show sympathy to them and encourage them and walk with them. Let's be the kind of church, let's be known throughout the city of Fayetteville as the kind of church that that waits out the storms of destruction together. 
the, the kind of church that bands together when the storm clouds push against one of us. Let's be known as, as one body, one body taking refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Well, not only is David's anchor in the storm worthy of our trust because he proves himself merciful and compassionate, but he's worthy because he's supreme and keeps his promises to his people. Look down at verses 2 and 3 again with me. Let me just read those again for us. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Notice, notice what, God, what David does in these verses. He switches from talking to God in verse 1 to talking about God. Right? And notice, notice what he's going to say about God in these verses. Here's everything he says. He says, God, he's the most high God. He's the God who fulfills his purpose. He's the God who will send from heaven and save me. He's the God who will put to shame him who tramples on me. He's the God who will send out his steadfast love in faithfulness. In other words, this God is utterly incomparable. No one else, nothing else in all of creation can accomplish these things. We can say, David can't say this about anything else in all of existence. There's no other refuge for him to run to. God's superior to all the other counterfeit refuges out there. He's superior in every single way. And it's because he's, he's superior in every single way that David's confident. He's resolute that the Lord's going to f- fulfill his purpose for him. Now, the circumstances, they would suggest that David is delusional for thinking that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for him, right? I mean, what does David honestly think, given his current circumstances? Where is he? He's in a cave. What does he actually think the Lord's purpose for him is? I mean, what are David's prospects here? He's hiding in a cave for crying out loud. And here he is in verse 2 saying, God is the God who fulfills his purpose for me. What does he think his purpose is? Death? Becoming lion food? Verse 4, he says he's around the lions. Is his prospect, is his purpose to become a, a cave dweller for the rest of his life? But friends, I want you to see this. David's not, he's not even considering his circumstances here. He's locked in on one thing and one thing alone. The character of God. He's looking with hope and with faith at the strength and the certainty of God's covenant promises. So much so that he's going to actually begin to anticipate God fulfilling them. That's how hard, that's how concentrated his focus is on the character of God. And not, not only is he, here's, here's something even more crazy that David's doing. And he's not only looking to God's promises in the midst of his circumstances. Look at verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He's praying for God's mercy, for God's glory. Look at verse 4. Look at where David says he is. This comes right before his prayer for God's glory. My soul is in the midst of lions. 
I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And then, bam, God, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. What? Are you kidding me, David? This is the situation you're in? And God's glory is what you're praying for? Oh, friends, that, that should be so, so convicting to us. It, it, it is to me. God's glory is far too often the last thing on my mind when I find myself in a season of disappointment or despair or discontentment, when I'm, when I'm in a season where every door that I'm asking the Lord to open, he slams shut and says, nope. I am far more prone in those moments to press God to answer for my circumstances or to do things my way for a change than I am to pray for him, pray to him, to use my circumstances to exalt his name above the heavens. And yet that's, that's what we see David doing here. I, I wonder if you relate to that at all. I, I wonder if, if that describes you when you're in a moment of despair or discouragement or discontentment. David has something to teach us here about faith. If you want to know what, what faith in God looks like, look right here. Look in these verses. True faith in God, it, it, it renders the promises of God as true simply because God himself makes them. Faith in God, it, it's, it is a defiant, theologically charged confidence that flies in the face of our storms and then anchors itself to the glory of God. Unbelief, though, it, it looks only at the circumstance, right? It sees only the cave, only the storm. It feels only the discontentment, only the discouraging situation. It hears only the Lord saying no over and over and over. It feels only that sharp blade of the sword pressed up against the neck. It's unbelief. But faith, theologically charged confidence that's defiant, it regards only the promise and the glory of the one who makes it. So Christian, take heart this morning. Take heart this morning in your storm or in your clear skies. God himself has fulfilled the promises of verse 3 and the rescue mission he launched for his people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of you in Christ this morning, the promises of verse 3 are past tense. The God Most High has come down from heaven to pick us up out of the pit of hopelessness such that when we were as good as dead in our sin, the word became flesh and dwelt among us to die a death we deserve so that we might be set free through faith and repentance. Our enemy has been put to shame. Sin and death no longer has any claim on your life. God has sent out his steadfast love and faithfulness for you. But if you're here this morning and you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, 
You don't know this kind of hope. You don't know these promises as past tense. Let me just say right now that we are thrilled to have you here. There is literally no place better you could be this morning than sitting in this psalm with us. But you need to know more than anything else the desperate state that you are in. Your sin against God puts you in a cave of catastrophic and infinite despair that you have no hope of escaping apart from Jesus Christ. You are a dead man in your sin, and you have an accuser far worse than the one David finds in verse 4. We've sinned against an infinitely holy and just God. You have sinned against an infinitely holy and just God, and that makes you deserving of his infinitely holy and fair and just wrath. You do not. No one in this room deserves the steadfast love of the Lord. That's the bad news. But friend, non-Christian, that's not where the story of what we call the gospel ends. God in his boundless love and mercy has made a way out of the cave, out of the storm. He sent his son from heaven to live the perfect life that you could never live and to die the death that you deserved. He took the penalty of your sin on himself so that you wouldn't have to. He, he took your place in the cave when, when he was nailed to the cross. And here, here is the best of news. He didn't stay dead. Three days after he was nailed to that cross, three days after death laid claim on King Jesus, he was raised to life in power and righteousness, vindicated and victorious. Friend, this is the good news that God promises to those who repent of their sins and rely on Jesus as their refuge. He will exchange. He promises Get this, he promises to exchange his son's righteousness for your filthy rags of sin. And all that's required of you is turning away from those rags, turning away from that sin, and walking with Jesus instead. God's proven himself worthy of your trust. So repent and believe. If that's you this morning, do not leave this room without talking to someone. I, I'm going to be up front. You can find staff and elders at all of our exits. We would be more than thrilled to happy, more than thrilled to, to walk with you and to talk with you through that. So please do not leave this place if that's you this morning. Well, this, it's through this, this theologically charged confidence in the character of David that David finds his footing and climbs his way up out of the cave and onto that mountaintop of praise. And it's that that we turn to in our second and final point. David's anthem in the storm, verses 7 to 11. So point number two, David's anthem in the storm, verses 7 to 11. All right, well, at the beginning of verse 6, David's enemies, they're laying a net for his steps. And it looks like they've got him. And even David, 
for a moment, thinks it's over. He thinks he's a goner. But then suddenly, there, right there in the middle of verse 6, the situation turns on itself. David, David's trust in the Lord there, and his, he trusts in the Lord's promise to lift up those who are bowed down to keep the godly from slipping, such that there, right there in the middle of verse 6, he actually begins to anticipate, even though he's still in the cave, his enemies falling in themselves and then himself being lifted out. They dug a pit in my way, he says. My soul was bowed down. But the turn, the tables turn. They fall in themselves. And so as we turn to, to verses 7 and 11, a song that, that started in lament, that started with, a, with David's head held underwater, now, now is going to be lifted up, and he's going to be breathing in that sweet oxygen of victory and deliverance in God the Father. Even though his physical, physical circumstances really haven't changed, he's given us no indication that they have. David's still in the storm, after all. His confidence in God takes him to a place where he's actually able to celebrate. He's actually able to celebrate in the midst of his cave the assurance and the deliverance of, God's, and of his deliverance and God's glory. And I look at, look at how all-consuming, look down at verse 8. Look at how all-consuming David's exaltation goes. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. That phrase, my glory there, in Hebrew, it literally means my entire being, my whole being. So, so David's joy in God here, it basically, it envelops his entire emotional being. Every fiber of his being is now given over to, to celebrating God's covenant faithfulness. And not only, not only is his emotional demeanor changing, now, now he's, he's going to become a one-man band, essentially. Right? He, he's grabbing instruments. Get my heart. Get my lyre. Right? I'm, and, he's, and he starts tuning them. He starts tuning them to the sound of, of God's mercy and love. And, and he's so eager to play, to strum on that harp, that he's going to be the one waking up the morning sun rather than the other way around. The, I mean, do you see this? Do you see what's happening here? The one who was as good as dead back in verse 6, the one who's, whose soul was bowed down, all of a sudden, he's so alive that he wants to wake up the world. Literally, he wants to wake up the world. I mean, look at where David's joy in, in God takes him. Look at verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Now, I wasn't alive in the 60s. You might be able to tell that. Uh, Maybe, I don't know. Um, but I have heard of this little band called the Beatles. I, I don't know. Maybe you've heard of them too. Maybe not. I don't know. I want you just to imagine, just imagine for a moment, if you were alive in the 60s, and if in the years after the Beatles had broken up, Paul McCartney came to you and said, I was going to do a Paul McCartney impression here, but I don't think it's going to happen. I didn't practice it well enough. Let's say Paul and the boys, they came to you and they said, look, mate, 
we're getting the band back together, and we want to go on a reunion. We want to go on a reunion tour across the globe, and we want to do it for free. And here's the hitch. Here's the deal. We want you, of all people, we want you to be the one to break the news. We want, we want you to go out. We want you to be the one to go out and to tell the world that the Beatles, the greatest band in the history of rock and roll, the, the band that changed music, we want you to go tell the world that they're getting back together and that anyone can come see us free of charge. Anybody can come see us. They just got to show up. I mean, if that was you, can you imagine how geeked out of your mind you would be to go and make that announcement? How ridiculously, how excited you, how you would not be able to sleep. You would, you would want to go make that an announcement immediately. You couldn't wait to proclaim that kind of news. And then can you imagine the, the international hysteria, the Beatles mania, right, that, that would just break out, that would ensue because of that kind of announcement? Well, that that kind of announcement, that pales in comparison to what God shouts from the, the rooftops of the world here in verse 9. Look, the, the Beatles in the 60s were huge. I'll give you that. I wasn't there, but I've seen clips on TV. They were big. But I promise you that they are nothing. That, that Beatles mania that hit is nothing compared to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. That's the announcement David's taking to the world. It's just not a song that, that David's going to spread among his own people. He's going global with the good news that God saves, which gives us just a bit of a glimpse, just a shadow of a glimpse into the way Jesus would also become a herald to those outside God's covenant people, that he might show God's truthfulness and confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs. And that the Gentiles, get this, that the Gentiles, those of us who did not belong to God's covenant people, that they might glorify God for his mercy. That's the way Paul picks up David's words here and, and then applies them to the ministry of Jesus in Romans chapter 15, 8, and 9. So a, a psalm that, that started off lamenting the difficult circumstances of one individual man who's instructing that, that one covenant people of God, it now ends in a flurry of declaration and praise before the whole world. God's praise rings forth across the entirety of every galaxy, and that magnificent fireworks display of his glory, it rains down like the 4th of July across the entire globe. Every nation, tribe, and tongue is now hearing the good news, the good news that the God of Israel is worthy of their trust and praise and that they can become part of the family. And brothers and sisters, hear this. Here's what is so incredible for us as a church right here in Little Fayetteville, Arkansas. Here's what should absolutely floor you as a member of God's people that have the privilege of joining together here. This song that David is belting out at the top of his lungs 
This is the very song that you and I get to participate in every Sunday morning when we gather together as God's people. When we gather together as a church, even, even in those moments where we find ourselves amidst the storm or, or in a cave of despair, we get the privilege of praising God. We get the privilege of praising God for the steadfast love and faithfulness he's shown us in Jesus Christ. And, and that glorious reality ought to change the way we worship. It ought to inform why we sing, what we sing, and how we sing when we gather together. So why do we sing? Why, why should God's people sing when they gather together? Well, we sing for the, for the same reason that David sings, right? Why does David sing? Verse 10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. It's the same reason that we sing when we gather together. God has rescued us when we were as good as dead. We sing because the New Testament, it actually commands us to respond to our good and gracious God through song. Ephesians 5, 19 and Colossians 3, 16. Singing then, isn't, it isn't just for those who are talented or, or who are in the band. It's something every Christian is called to do. We sing to, to edify and to encourage one another. When we gather to sing, we, we, we just don't sing to God, but we sing to build up one another in the faith. What should we sing? We should sing only the best songs. Songs rich with the lyrics that the scriptures provide for us. We should sing songs that, that drip with the timeless theology and melody of God's word. And yet songs that are accessible and helpful and, and driving the truth of God's character deep into our hearts. We should sing songs that run the full gamut of the Christian experience. Songs that that hold our heads underwater in the despair of our sin. And yet in that, in that same sweep, like a pendulum, lift us up out of that water, out of that desperation, and into our, and so that we can experience and breathe in that sweet oxygen that victory in Christ gives to us. We should sing songs that, that we can all sing. Songs that the young and the old alike and the many different cultures that, that gather and represent uh, this congregation. We should sing songs that, that our whole congregation can sing, such that our singing highlights our unity as a church in Christ and not our own personal preferences. How should we sing? We should sing engaged with God, rather than just mechanically moving our mouths as as words roll by on a screen, our whole being, like David's, should be swallowed up, taken up in the song of the redeemed, such that our affections are given entirely over to God. Like David, we should sing, we should sing with the eagerness and joy. We should be excited to sing about God's faithfulness to us, even, even if, get this, even if, if singing really isn't your thing. Even if, even if you don't like to sing, or like me, you are a terrible singer, you, are, you should sing with eagerness and joy. Even, 
even if you are, even if you can't hold a note or you don't, you can't follow a tune, you should sing loudly and proudly so that others can hear you. That, that doesn't mean you should yell or scream, but it does mean that, that we as a church ought to amplify our voices in such a, such a way that we can hear one another singing. This, this is the kind of singing that's going to help each of us foster in one another that same kind of defiant, theologically charged faith that David presents in Psalm 57. In that sense, then, praising God through song, it, it becomes a weapon. It becomes a weapon that we can use to, to fight for faith that anchors itself to the never-failing promises God has made to us and his son, Jesus Christ. I, I cannot begin to tell you how much it's ministered to my soul to watch suffering Christians sing. Just the simple ministry of praising God through song. I, I, how the couple that suffered another miscarriage, another miscarriage, how hearing them sing the words, to he will hold me fast, has bolstered my own faith in God's promises to us. Or how so many of you in this very congregation have steeled my resolve in Jesus when I've seen you sing amidst your own storms of destruction. Whether it's, it's cancer or the death of a spouse, the death of a child, whether it's depression or infertility or abuse or anxiety and fear, discontentment, a wayward child, the loss of a job or, or another last, lost battle with a besetting sin. You, you have ministered to my soul in the songs that you sing when you show up here, even when you're in the storm. Whatever the storm, whatever the storm you face, you stare down, you remind me where to place my hope when you sing. So UBC, keep singing. Keep singing. Sing your guts out for the glory of our great God and for the good of the brothers and sisters who are sitting around you. Sing your guts out to the glory of God and for the brothers and sisters you've, you've made a promise to in this church. Do not underestimate. Do not underestimate the ministry of singing. It's not for people in the band. You are the choir. Lift us up with your songs. Now what we do here every single Sunday morning is it's but a dress rehearsal. It's but a dress rehearsal for that glorious day that will soon dawn on us and never end. That glorious day when you and I and all the redeemed, when we will gather 
in the concert hall of our promise-keeping king. And guess what we'll do? We will sing for all eternity the sheet music of all the ways the Lord's proved himself worthy of our praise. And on that day, like David in Psalm 57, our hearts will be fixed on the face of King Jesus. We will look on the Lamb and sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And our voices on that day, whether even now we cannot hold a tune, on that day, we will hold the note with myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. That song's coming, friends. It's coming. Until then, Let's keep warming up our voices, for the Lord has proven to you that he is worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Lord, what a delight it is to find our trust in you. Lord, there there is nowhere else that we can turn to in the midst of our caves or our storms. You're it. You're it. You've proven yourself time and time and time again that you can withstand the waves, that you can withstand the wind, that you can withstand the the taunts of our enemies, that you can withstand our our feelings of despair and discontentment. And so, Father, we, we run to you this morning. We run to you this morning, anchoring ourselves to the, to the promises you never break and to, to the glory that will spread, that will spread above the heavens. And Lord, so we pray with the psalmist this morning, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. O Lord, help us to fasten our hearts to you amidst the storms of destruction. Help us to find our hope and our resolve and our refuge in you and you alone. We pray these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen.